chapter 4. We're going to kind of land the plane today on this uh, power of words. And uh, you say, well, why do we have to come to an end? All good things come to an end so we can start something new, correct? Uh, I could go probably for the next 10 years just picking words from the Bible and tell you what they actually mean and how many of you have learned something, especially that it doesn't always mean what we maybe thought it means. And these are the challenges. And today we're going to look at one of the biggest challenges we have, and that is the kingdom. The kingdom of God. Some people argue about the kingdom, say, well, the Bible says that there is a kingdom of heaven and there is a kingdom of God. Well, they're actually talking about the same thing. Okay? So I'll give you a little explanation, then you have it, you can go home with it. The kingdom of God is where God is among human beings. The kingdom of heaven simply means that heaven has joined earth. That's what that means. In order for the kingdom of heaven to meet the kingdom of God, God had to come down from where he is in the spiritual, the kingdom of heaven. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say that you will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in the spiritual realm. Heaven is not normally, a, you know, it's not Venus or the moon or Mars or whatever you may call it. It's not out there. Heaven is where God is. Well, God is everywhere. I do understand that. But God is also particularly interested in being among his people. That's when we come together and worship the Lord together. It's simply a place where we can be reminded that God is in our midst. Why? Because God's people are here. That's why. Okay. In the kingdom of God, in Matthew chapter 4, begin reading in verse 18, actually 12. Let's go back to 12. Here is the story told how Jesus starts his ministry on this earth. Really nobody knew who Jesus actually is. They have heard some things. 30 years before, they have heard, at least a few people have heard, in the desert land where shepherds were, that there is a Savior to be born. But how many of you have heard something 30 years ago and you've already forgotten? <laughs> so many of you have heard maybe yesterday something you'd already forgotten. That means you are in retirement age. So just because we've heard it doesn't mean that we actually were holding on to and still believed it. So 30 years after Jesus' birth, here goes. Now when we heard that John, or when he, that's Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left the nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, the father, mending the nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is a simple introduction into how Jesus started his ministry effectively among the people, God's people actually. The question we have to ask ourselves immediately is, did they understand what is actually going on? Or I mean, they, they, they don't understand, that, especially those who got healed, those who maybe got uh, delivered by demonic, from demonic powers by Jesus. They understood, I'm free. But did they really understand who stood before them? Would we today recognize if Jesus would decide to in human form stand before us? Would we be any better off than they were 2,000 years ago? Or would we just come because we heard of a guy who is traveling in our region and happened to be preaching a message which I don't understand, but I like what he's doing. And so I'm going. I want to be touched. I want to, I want to get what I have a need of. And then we walk away and say, oh, that was awesome. I liked it. And then we go our married way. Why I'm saying all these things is, behind the scene, unseen to all the people there, is a fulfillment when these, spoke, these words were spoken by Jesus that was in the making for thousands of years. There's an unseen war going on which you and I are not capable of seeing in the spiritual realm that is now coming to a culmination right there. Michael Heiser in his book, The Unseen Realm, and I quote him briefly, said this as he summarizes one of the chapters about Jesus' appearance. He said, the kingdom of God is already a present reality, but isn't yet realized. Just because it's a reality doesn't mean it's realized. He goes on to say, John the Baptist announced it. He introduced its king. Jesus preached its arrival and demonstrated what life in God's Edenic world could and would be like. No disease, no infirmity, no demonic opposition. New Testament makes the rebirth of a struggle thousands of years in the making. The people of God have been isolated and under foreign rule. The divine presence of the days of Moses, David, and Solomon, and the prophets is nothing but memory. When angels visit Mary and Zechariah to announce the impending births of Jesus and John, centuries of divine silence are broken. Thirty years later, Jude, Judea will explode. The unseen spiritual conflict is even more volatile. What he's telling us here is that there is going to be a spiritual conflict of such major proportion that is beyond the wildest dreams. Let's read the last paragraph of that excerpt. Every chapter of the New Testament provides a glimpse into this conflict. The cosmic geography of the Old Testament is evident in the New. We're going to discuss that briefly, what that means. Where Jesus goes and what he says and does when he gets there is framed by confrontation with unseen powers. The conflict pursues him unto death. As God had planned and as Jesus provoked, the kingdom of God, is estab God establishes a permanent beachhead at the foot of the cross and the door of the empty if you know anything about military terminology, a beachhead is simply a little tiny just piece where you can barely put your feet down from which the battle is intensified and enemy territory will be conquered. So at the foot of the cross, the open tomb, it's just a beachhead. What we are going to see and do after that is actually a continuation of what Jesus started for you and me to be participating in so we can experience the freedom 
That's called the kingdom of God. What is the beachhead doing? The beachhead is set up in enemy territory. Jesus is going right into the heart of enemy territory. Not to lose the battle. Not to say, well, this time I failed. But to claim absolute victory. One day, every inch on this planet will be taken over by the Lord Jesus Christ with his people and turns this entire earth into an Edenic garden once again. There is no power on earth who can stop that. There is no power in the spiritual realm that can stop that. That is designed that way, and it will come to pass if we like it or not. And I hope all of you like it. That's the way it's going to go. And that's what it's all about when Matthew is revealing to us how Jesus began his ministry. Matthew is telling that Jesus got the good news, or the bad news, whatever you want to call it, but he got the news that John the Baptist, his cousin, who was specifically miraculously brought into this world for one purpose only, to be the forerunner and then to eventually baptize Jesus in the Jordan River. Let's quickly put up a map so we can kind of follow these patterns. So you know what's going on in Matthew. Here's a little matter drawing out of the Galilean and Judean territory. This is when you look down by the Dead Sea, down there, you can see, it's not the sharpest, but you can see there's the Jordan River, which comes from the Sea of Galilee and eventually dumps into the Dead Sea. John the Baptist is baptizing Jesus at the bottom end there, the northern end of the Dead Sea, where you can see Jericho, just to the west of the Jordan River. Because that's where the Israelites the first time cast into the promised land. The unseen realm should have gotten the message there is a new conquest going on here. So John is baptizing. Jesus comes all the way from Galilee. That's like we would call a, a county. And so he comes from Galilee. He was born and lived in Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, lived in Nazareth. And uh, so he comes now over to get baptized, and then he makes his way up to Galilee. At the northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee, you see the Capernaum. That's where Jesus is going to set up his headquarters when he launches his ministry. That's where he is at when Matthew picks up what's going on. That's where Jesus is at. So he's far away from where John the Baptist got arrested. And so he gets the news, and somehow that triggers, okay, I have to launch my ministry. Remember when they asked John, are you the one? He said, no, 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 I'm not the one. I must decrease so he can increase. What John did not understand is, I will disappear from the scene. And then the real one will appear and you will know and see it. That's exactly what happened. Jesus leaves the region of Judea, goes back to the region of Galilee, eventually coming to Capernaum, and uh, he's traveling around the sea. What do people in Galilee at that time have in their heads when they see this strange preacher? going around from synagogue to synagogue. Just like you will go every Sunday to church, like you always have done, like your forefathers have done, you sit in church, half the stuff you hear, you don't believe anymore because you have outgrown that stuff. These are Bible stories for kids, correct? The Jewish people were not unlike that. They went to the synagogue, but they have given up a long time ago about what God promised about them. Just like in America, the churches are filled with people. They go to church, but they don't believe a single word what God promised what he will do. 
You just go because it's the right thing to do. We want to please somebody. We go. There's no relationship. There's no understanding of history. There's no understanding about the unseen battle that's going on. We just go and do the right thing. We're good people. We're going. We're much better than those who don't go, correct? (laughs) So we think. But I think every so often, God shows up on the scene and rattles our cages. Which, by the way, we have to sign ourselves and be our own slaves inside. We just don't know it. So the people lived there. One thing the people were absolutely aware of, and that is that not everything is well in Galilee. They understood this. Why? They're living in a militarized zone. They're occupied by the Roman armies. Every morning they get up. They hear the soldiers going and making their security rounds. From every town when they want to travel from one town to the other, there was a checkpoint. And most of the time you couldn't go to the next region until you paid off the tax guy who was sitting in the tax booth wants to get bribed so you can move to the next place. Why do you think God uses Matthew to write all this? Why do you think of what Matthew was? He worked for the Roman government. He knows how these things are working. He paints the picture, but as he writes, he, he assumes that everybody who is reading that knows the situation they lived in. So in the Western culture, we read this like, hey, we're in California at the beach. And there's a guy in the 60s with long hair just preaching. He's a new Jesus movement going. That's the way we picture that in our head. That's not the way it was. They are living under military occupation for 70 years by the time Jesus shows up. They are being reminded of this reality every day they get up. These military occupiers, they took the land from the ancestors, which the ancestors were having passed down from generation to generation for hundreds of years. The taxes increased. It's nothing new. You moan and groan about taxes. There's nothing new. The Romans increased the tax base for property owners every year for the single purpose to get the property. If you look at the map during the time of Jesus, you will see on the southwestern shore of Galilee, there's a town called Tiberias. That, was, that uh, town was actually built by the Romans to have the soldiers, primarily the leaders, the centurion and the families, having retirement there. The Jewish people were reminded on their ancestral land, there are pagans occupying the land, which according to God, they were not even permitted to interact with. This was not a good situation. These people saw that every day. Life was difficult. That's what I want to say. You get it? But there's another thing too. These occupying forces, they served a different God. They called upon the pantheon gods. Venus and Mars and all these beautiful names they had. And the ultimate ruler over all this was Augustus Caesar. The emperor. They pledged allegiance to these gods and to the one who sat in Rome declared himself to be God. And now comes that guy, that crazy guy, born in Nazareth or in Bethlehem, but they believed he was from Nazareth because that's where he grew up in. And he comes to Capernaum and he goes every Sabbath into the synagogue and proclaims something that is preposterous. The kingdom of heaven 
is near. At hand means it's available. It's here. And the people look around and say, yeah, I can see it, sure. Where do you live? Where have you come from? But then he says something. He said, repent. And that's a word which in the Christian community is misunderstood greatly. It's something like Jesus goes in the synagogue and said, okay, guys, stop for a second. The way you live, the way you think you live, the way you serve, the way you think you serve, stop. Why do you have to stop and reevaluate everything? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He says, you need to learn to reevaluate everything right now. Reevaluate about who you are, the world you're living in, and who God is. That's repentance. Reevaluate. How many of us have grown up a certain way of thinking? And then comes that crazy guy from Switzerland and tells you you've got to think entirely different. And you say, where did he come from? When I say to you, repent, I'm saying, you have been brought up a certain way to think, and that thinking is not always accurate. So I'm challenging you to rethink everything. Stop doing what you're doing, and I'm going to force you to make a decision. You say, nobody can force me to make anything happen. Yes, you just made a decision not to do anything. But when I tell you the word repent, I'm forcing you to make a decision. All the things you were thinking up to this point, reevaluate. Think about it. About yourself and about God. And it's going to force all those who are here to reevaluate the priorities and the values. Here's one of the biggest challenges we have in the Western culture where science has become king. Science has become our God. Only what we see and what we can do do we believe. Well, if science is your God, I have some bad news for you. You haven't seen anything yet. Our scientific advancements will mind-boggle you what's coming in the next five years. Absolutely mind-boggle you. Because the very thing we call science and we call our God will enslave human beings. Ever been enslaved to something? I grew up during a time when black and white TV came into being. You know when you had to actually get off of your chair and go and turn the knob to get a different channel? And six or seven times you only get snowflakes? I know I'm ancient. My wife said we only had three channels. Two were snowflakes and one was working. Ah. Today, we program that thing when we come home. My favorite show is on. Would you say science has a little bit improved on this? You know, we used to have rotary phones at home. Brrr. Brrr, brrr, not tick, 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 ping, and it's connected. We couldn't call over to the United States and talk with you unless we get a lot of money first. It was expensive. Today we communicate all over the world. Science has improved drastically. But how many would have to say it also enslaved us in many ways? We cannot have the freedom anymore which we so desperately need in order to be what God has designed us to be. So here comes that Jewish guy and he's telling the people, you are enslaved and you know it. And I come here to declare that the kingdom of heaven is available for you. And you have to make a decision. And they go, oh, let's wait. Next Friday we come back to the synagogue. 
And then you come. There are only three, four synagogues around the Sea of Galilee at that time. And Jesus just goes from one place to the other preaching. So they hear it, but they don't respond yet really well. But for the Jewish people, they knew the Hebrew Scriptures. Their parents brought them up at their feet with telling them stories, ancestral stories. Most of these people, if they worked in the field, they didn't have access. Even if they could read, they didn't have access to scrolls. It was way too expensive. But when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand for the older ones, he triggered something. He triggered excitement and hope. Maybe, maybe this is it. So where was the concept of kingdom, king, and ruling show up the first time in the Bible, what do you think? That's a trivia question. Let me see how good you are. Where does the concept of kingdom and king and rulership show up the first time in the Bible? Okay, Saul, he was a bad one. Actually, go to Genesis chapter 1. You will be amazed. It's always good to start in the on the first page in the book. I know for you normally, oh, that's all the, the credits they give to after. No, 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 not here. Look at 126. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have what? Dominion. Dominion is another word of saying rulership. Rulership. You ask yourselves, why does God even come up with this idea to make people, which by the way he knows are going to go against him? It's a fundamental principle which you need to understand, which every human being when he comes into this world starts fighting the first second. God wants to share everything he has. And he has decided that we are the one he's going to share everything with it, including rulership. As parents, when you raise kids, what is the first thing you have to teach them? They don't like to share. Yet we are made in his image. We're supposed to be sharing. Ah, oh, that's mine. That goes straight to the heart of kingdom. This is my kingdom. And I defend my kingdom. God says, let us make man in our image. And we're going to give them dominion. We're going to share rulership with them. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Have rulership over it. How well did man do? Okay. I remind you almost every Sunday. Let's go to Psalm 8. Psalm 8, the psalmist is repeating and is, a reflection, is reflecting about that particular Genesis 1 incident. Here he goes. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because your foes to still the enemy and the adventure. Would you say Jesus maybe quoted something at that during his ministry? When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him what? Dominion, rulership over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Dominion is rulership. By the way, the word rulership is kingly language. Rule and, and king goes together. 
Okay, give me an example. Uh, some of you maybe be a shift manager somewhere. And uh, you walk around in the store and you say, hey, I rule this place. Or so you think. The people who work with you say, well, we let them think that way. But literally what we're doing is managing it because it belongs to somebody else and we are put in place to manage it, correct? We're not really ruling, okay? Here God says, I want you to rule and reign over everything I have given you, okay? So he gave us the mandate. But when you get a mandate, mandate like this, it demands that you and I make decisions about what is good and what is not good. This is the whole reason why we have this story in the Bible about the fruit of the tree of good and evil. It's not about an apple. Man has decided believing the lie of a spiritual being, that we are capable and more than willing to make the decision what is good and what is evil. By that decision, we started our own kingdom. The first thing you read in the Bible is two brothers. And one of them decides... I don't like that the other guy has more favors. So I make a decision. It is good for me to kill him. There you see the result of building your own kingdom. In order for you to advance in life, you have to do it at the expense of somebody else. That's what that is. Do you think we still have the kind of thinking among us? I come straight out of this. God says, rulership, I tell you what is good. A man said, oh, no, 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 I determine that. And therefore, man rules this world ever since and makes up his own rulership. These are human beings going to rule this good world God made based upon what God calls good but then they determine for themselves how evil looks like and how good looks like. And ever since, we are fighting one tribe against the other tribe. It's called war. And it is my personal benefit to overrule and conquer the other tribe. And that's the way I rule. Humans decide to start the kingdom totally autonomous from God. We make our own decisions. The Bible calls that this age. Have you ever wondered? The ruler of this age. That's the age where man decided, I am going to call the shots what's good and what's evil. That's this age. The Apostle Paul says it differently, said, oh, this is the age of sin and death. That's what that is. What is God going to do in order to counteract this hostile takeover? He's setting in motion a plan to reassert his rule over his kingdom. And that's the whole story. The entire Old Testament is how God reasserts that until Jesus shows up. Then we see it in the physical. Want to go quickly to a fast rundown? How that works? Just in case you've forgotten, did you say yes? Okay, good. I just want to make sure. I would do it anyway. Because this is my kingdom. <laughs> Oops. First, God calls a man by the name of Abraham. Remember? And he starts the process. 
The people obviously eventually, they multiply, just as God said, okay? They're being separated from others, Genesis chapter 10 and 11, and God is king over these new people. He calls the Hebrew people. These people group, so number, uh, full of numbers, full of, I mean, they grow and grow and grow and grow. And where do they end up? In Egypt. At that time, the empire that conquered everything. There's no accident. God is king over the Hebrew, and Egypt is a different king. The most powerful kingdom on earth at that time. The king is called Pharaoh. Okay. Listen, Pharaoh represents everything that is wrong. He eventually wants to grind the Jewish people into the ground by killing the newborns at the expense of building huge cities, storehouses, and advance economically and militarily. Pharaoh calls that good. God calls it evil. So what does God do? He raises up a man by the name of Moses. We all know the stories between them. And he says, you're going to go down there and you're going to get the people out. You're going to get my people out. And when he comes before that mighty, mighty power called Pharaoh, and Moses said, my God told me to go tell you to let these people go. I came to deliver them. What is Pharaoh's response? Who is that God? I don't know him. Who tells me how to rule my kingdom? I am the ruler here. I call the shots here. I don't care whose God you're calling upon. I do not let these people go. They are my property. Needless to say, God has to drown them. The whole army, there was never an army as powerful as Pharaoh's army. He sets them a trap, gets the Israelites to the Red Sea, buries them, the entire army, including Pharaoh. It was too late for Pharaoh to think who that God is. Pharaoh is fighting God. Why? He's intoxicated with pride and power. Let me share something with you, my friends. Man hasn't changed. We are still intoxicated with power and positions and full of pride. Always at the expense of other people. And this is in the midst of the story of that victory God wins over Pharaoh, where we find Exodus chapter 15. The Jewish people call that the song of the sea. Listen to what they say. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Let's go to the end of that wonderful song. Yahweh reigns as king forever and ever. I talk straight out of the original Hebrew. Yahweh is reigning as king forever and ever. How many of you have to say he reasserted his power and get his people free? That's what you see here. This is rulership. Pharaoh had to see it firsthand. God brings eventually the people to a place called Mount Zion, and the God enters into a covenant with that nation. He gives them the Ten Commandments, what we call. And then later on, he adds 603 more. 
All laws are given so that they would never interact and do things what the surrounding nations do. So they're totally separate. So the king of this world took down Pharaoh. And this is how it looks like when God asserts his kingdom. He takes them down. We find out later when the Israelites were eventually in slavery to the king in Babylon. What do you think God did to Nebuchadnezzar? He took him down too. He will take every ruler down eventually. God destroys the rulership by sending them into spiritual battle. And he wins it. However, after God made a covenant with the Israelites, they all of a sudden thought, we don't need our God to rule over us. Let's have a king. Now we come to Saul. We need a king like everybody else. We need somebody who rules over us because that God, oh, he's never here. You know, he created something, he loves us, and then he went way out there. He's totally absent. That's, by the way, how most Christians live. God got me into his kingdom. God left. He's about 600 million light years away from us. And every so often, he decides on Christmas to shine a little light under the manger scene. And sometimes he speaks at Easter morning, but otherwise he's gone. We're going to have to rule, because by default we have to rule. He's not here. Isn't that the way the world works today? I'm talking about the church world. So the Israelites get all these kings. And what do they do? What kings do? They enslave the people. The very kings of Israel and Judah are enslaving their very own people because they like to rule. So much so that God one day says, you guys need to go into slavery again. And you're going to experience what it means to be a slave. So it takes, when you read the stories in the Old Testament, you will find out that the first they go into captivity are always the rulers in Jerusalem. All the kingly families. They take them. While they ruled wickedly, and thought it was good the way they ruled, and God said, okay, I sent you over to Assyria. Israel, go over to Assyria, and you're going to find out how that feels like when you are on the receiving end. That which you called good, all of a sudden, now you call evil. Something changed. And when Judah didn't get the answer, God said, you go to Babylon into captivity, and you're going to find out how it's over there. And then they moan and groan, and then God comes and brings them back out of slavery, okay? 700 years before Jesus comes on the scene in Matthew, God raises up a mighty prophet by the name of Isaiah. This man was born in Jerusalem. He has seen it all. God says, I want you to write something. Because they were walled in at that time. And they were surrounded by enemy armies constantly. Then they sent a few contingents out to battle the enemy, came back like whipped dogs. Isaiah one day stands on top of the wall, seeing a guy come running from the field to bring news what's going on in the battlefield. And he recognized that this man had good news the way he acted. And here is what he wrote down. The Holy Spirit came upon him. He says, oh, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good news, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns as king. He said, oh, what good it is when I hear those, when the messenger shows up and tells me this. 
Listen, you watchmen, lift up the voices. Together they shout for joy. When Yahweh returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Isaiah doesn't know what he's prophesying. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. 700 years before Jesus shows up in Matthew chapter 4 on the scene, Isaiah said the whole hope of Israel is on the person who is going to be introduced as the king. Listen. Many pharaohs came for thousands of years. They came and went. I can put so many names out there. You know history. They just went under different names. When Jesus arrives at the scene here, the Roman pharaoh was called Caesar Augustus, he was a pharaoh, demanding absolute allegiance to his rulership and enforcing it with his soldiers that are marching around Israel. And here comes this crazy man from Nazareth saying, repent! Stop thinking about your slaves. I came here to deliver you. You are about to be delivered from this slavery. By the way, just as an insert, in our society, including from the pulpits in America, we hear Jesus just was a very good moral teacher. He was such a wise man, he had some good sayings. Listen, how stupid is that? It's almost the word idiotic would be more accurate. Nobody got in the Roman Empire crucified because he was a good teacher. Nobody got crucified because he healed the sick or fed thousands of them. Nobody got crucified because he went around and just doing good. He got crucified because nobody who is a pharaoh likes the real king arriving on the scene. He claimed to be the king and nobody liked it. I am the king. If you ever want a battle in the church, Just have a few kings running around. Jesus comes to the scene and said, I am the king. I'm, I'm preaching to you the arrival of my visible kingdom on this earth. And all hell broke loose. That's why Jesus got crucified. If you ever believed the lie that he was a good moral teacher, listen, stop, repent, change your thinking. Sometimes people say things, I'm not so sure if they have five ounces of brain capacity still available or what's going on. But these things don't make sense. Could you imagine in the United States of America, you would have an economic slowdown so that nobody gets a job and somebody comes to the scene and says, guys, don't worry about it. I am the one who can help you. I pay your mortgages. Oh, by the way, for that you can run for the next president. I pay your student loans, and people go, yeah, this is awesome. They're not going to crucify them. I like people who talk like this, isn't it? Until the bill comes due. What does it mean the kingdom of God is at hand? I wrote it up for you. Let's read it together. It means that the king is forming a new people by liberating them from the kingdom of this world, of this age, by confronting the evil, I could add, that enslaves them. This is what the people in Israel were thinking when they heard Jesus proclaim, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God is forming a new people. Listen, God is not using people who are slaves to other gods or other governments. God demands not just a pledge of allegiance, he demands absolute loyalty. There's no compromise with God. 
If you want to know how a king rules, look at the dictators we toppled in the Middle East. They didn't say, well, maybe one day, you know, you go over to the other side, and one day you do this, and next time, you, and then when you, whenever you feel like it, you can pledge allegiance, be loyal to me. In this kind of situation, Jesus shows up. Now when you heard that John had been arrested, why do you think Matthew brings it up? Herod just got a hold of John. He's the ruler there. Why? Because he stole his brother Philip's wife. And John said, in the kingdom I represent, this is evil. Next thing, your head is on a platter. Jesus shows up and said, oh yeah, you know what? I preach good news. Look what he does next. This is awesome. This is how you have to read the stories. So he goes and literally walks around the Sea of Galilee. You know, he has time between the Sabbaths. He had to do something. So he walks around the lakes, and he watches these fishermen out there. And he just walks right up to him and said, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, we can read this and we say, Oh, this is an awesome command. No, 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 no. Let's go to the 21st century. Let's say all of you would sit uh, in a good restaurant eating dinner Friday night. And the guy with the AR-15 shows up and says, follow me. And you would say, oh yeah, not a problem. We're waiting for you. Really? I tell you what, I pull my gun out pew, and take him out. This is radical what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't, he doesn't need a gun. Listen, when you need force, okay, when you need force to make somebody follow you, you are evil. Outright. This is what you see here. Jesus knows what good looks like in his kingdom. And he says, follow me. And look what these guys do. It's unbelievable. Remember, there may be, we're standing around Roman guards. And these guys stopped thinking the way they used to think that they were on the slavery and they only move when the Roman government speaks. And now comes this crazy preacher and they leave everything, including that, the family business, and follow that crazy guy. Well, the answer is found later on. They say, nobody ever spoke with such authority. There was power behind it. And Jesus spoke. So they disappear. Immediately the Bible says, this is making Jesus' command so phenomenal. He is taking those who follow him along, doesn't demand anything, just follow me, and he's showing them what the kingdom of God looks like. They follow him. His purpose for calling them is, come and I show you how you can become fishers of men. I'm not commanding it to you. I show you. Just follow me. Come. Because in verse 21 it says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And he says the same thing. And they immediately left the boat and the father and followed him. And look next. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel, that's the good news, of the kingdom. Okay? So he's going and he's teaching first. He doesn't perform miracles only. He's teaching them about what? What the kingdom of God means. So he's teaching them. Then he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And then he shows them how it looks like. What does he do from now on? Wherever he goes, he heals people. He sets demonic oppressed people free. He does all the things 
which you and I would consider normal in the kingdom of God. Now there are a few challenges there for you and me. Depends how your upbringing is. Depends what you heard over the years in the churches. How many of you would like to see the kingdom at work like this? No, no, some of you said, no, that's not the way I have been taught. I have been taught that these things have ceased to exist. Stop. Repent. Repent of thinking that way. Let go of your pride and of your old religious garbage which has hindered you to see what God can do. Now that's a challenge. But that's when the kingdom of God has arrived. We are kingdom people. We don't have to be crazy going out there claiming what we don't have. That power and that rulership is only found because Jesus lives in you and me. No other reason. It's not in you or else you are going to build your little kingdom again. You're going to decide what's good and what's evil, and you're going to tell people that they have to follow you. No, God's people showing the people whom they ought to follow. It's Jesus, not man. We don't build our kingdom. The reason why the church has no power today is man want man to follow them. That's why. Follow Jesus. Well, but he's gone. You know, he said he's going to leave. I'm, on an, I'm an orphan here. I'm all by myself. It's going to do it. Have you ever had that idea? Nobody helps me. I have to do it all by myself. <laughs> if you're a real woman, you said it many times. <laughs> Nobody's doing it. I have to do it. In other words, nobody really wants to submit to my kingdom. I'm going to have to do everything myself. Listen, in God's kingdom, you don't have to do it by yourself. Jesus does it through you. That's an entirely different kingdom. How many would have to say, I would love to have a kingdom like this working in my life. Follow him. Follow him. He's teaching us. He's proclaiming the good news. He's still healing. He's still setting afflicted people free. You say, well, but we don't need that anymore today. You know, we got medication for that. <laughs> I know. Medication doesn't heal. Medication lets, lets you believe that it's healed because it numbed the real cause. Jesus is not a guy who numbs your problems. He goes right to the cause. You know what's the cause of all our problems and all our illnesses? We have decided to build our own kingdom and determine what's good and what's evil. That's the cause. Everything we are facing in this world that's the cause. It's called rebellion against God. The good news I have for you is when Jesus came and he preached that, these people who followed him, all of a sudden recognized there was an explosion of miracles, signs, and wonders. And wherever Jesus went, demonic forces opposed him. Wherever he went. Things people did not see and did not understand, but they heard about it that there is such a thing because they knew that there are spiritual forces, but they couldn't see it, and they didn't believe that they are working in their lives until Jesus comes and brings the light, and everything got exposed. This is what Michael Heiser says, Judea literally exploded. That's when the king comes. By the way, that's the same thing that happened to you and me. How many of you have to say, when you met the king and you said, you follow him, things started exploding around you. There are battles. 
There are all kinds of different things happening. Because every encounter Jesus had, no human being could walk away unchanged. Let me say that this morning to all of you. You cannot encounter Jesus and walk away unchanged. One way or the other. Either you are walking away, you're mad as a hornet, or you're walking away just receiving a peace no one else can give you. You can't walk away any other way. In his presence, when Jesus is in, in his church, in his presence, you and I have to be confronted and will be confronted with the darkest issues of life. These are all the things which we love to bury. And we don't want to think about it. Especially our embrace of evil. You have to face it. You, you cannot hide from it. It's deep-rooted. The way we live, the way we lie, the way we cheat, the way we gossip, the way we do all the things. These are deep-rooted issues. When you're in the presence of God, he brings it forth. And you say, I'm done. I know. I think evil and then act evil. I have my own little thiefdom. And you know it. And what does Jesus do? He gives you a lecture for six hours. Does he? What did he do to you? He just looked at you in absolute love and said, if you come to me, it's taken care of. You just follow me. I had a discussion, I wrap it up with this. I had a discussion with a young person few weeks ago about eternal security and the person comes to me and said you know I can't believe people don't believe in eternal security and you know that and I said actually these two words are not found in the Bible and you should have seen an explosion happen I said what really makes you a Christian is following Jesus if somebody follows his in their own direction or whatever religious affiliation you have, you have problems. If you follow Jesus, you have never to worry about it. You are absolutely secure in Jesus' hands. The question is, who do you follow? That's the ultimate question. He said, if you follow me, I will teach you and I will make you fishes of men. I will teach you how you can share what it means to follow me. Your life gets transformed. That's the kingdom. That's when Jesus is king in your my life. Think about that for a minute. Where are you today with him? That's my question to all of you. Just think about it. Where are you? Anything which you still want to hold on, you say, no, 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 I know better than God. I, I really know better. Uh, uh, he maybe calls it evil, but I think it's fantastic. Well, stop. Think differently. It will set you free. It will give you a peace that passes all understanding. You can follow him. One thing Jesus will never do, he will never, ever mislead you because he is truth. And he's got a plan. He wants you and me to spend eternity with him. By the way, right down here. And that earth will turn into the Garden of Eden one day. It is then when wars are over because there's no king left to fight. The king who comes back and rules is not a king who has to subdue people. He calls people. Just follow me. 
That's called love. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for your words. Thank you for your teaching. Thank you for giving us insight. Thank you, Lord, for making us what only you can make us to be. Once again, being part into relationship with you in such a way that what you call good is good and what you call evil is evil. You even said to us, woe to the people who call evil good and good evil because you know the consequences and you show to us how we are going about business here, how we love to have rulers over us until they put us in slavery, then we moan and curl. But if they give us what we want and we idolize them and worship them, yet you said that you're the only one worthy to be worshiped. May this morning, Lord, we reevaluate the way we think about you, the way we think about ourselves, the way we think about the world we're living in, and all these people who still need to get into your kingdom. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word because we know every promise you've given us is yes and amen. And all you tell us is simply to follow you, to believe you, and you will set us free for good. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people can say amen and amen.